This morning's scripture comes from Joel, uh, chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. This is the word of the Lord for us. Uh, We're going to be continuing our series entitled Proclaim. And so as you know, in this series, we're studying from the, the book of Acts, uh, for the next few weeks, and more specifically in Acts, we're going to be focusing on the first sermons preached by the early church and by the apostles after the ascension of Christ. And so these are some of the first kind of gospel declarations uh, that we get uh, from the people of God here in the New Testament. And so by studying these sermons, our aim is to come to uh, a better knowledge and a better comprehension of the gospel. And so this is, this is really, really important because as a church, we always talk about wanting to be a gospel-centered church, right? About wanting to be focused around and centered around the gospel. We want to spread the gospel. We want to be transformed by the gospel. But in order to do that, in order to be a, a gospel-centered church, we have to know the gospel. If we don't understand the gospel... We're going to fail to communicate it. And if we don't understand the gospel, we're going to fail to be transformed by it. And ultimately, if we don't understand the gospel, then MCA is not going to be successful in our mission to share the life-giving power of Jesus with the world. And so the stakes are high, uh, but my hope and my prayer is that over these next couple weeks through this study in Acts, uh, we're going to grow in our intellectual understanding of the gospel. And that intellectual understanding will flow down into our hearts. And as our hearts comprehend and grasp the gospel message, uh, that truth will naturally flow out into our our hands and our feet as we uh, go and do the work of our Father in heaven and give our lives as living sacrifices to God. Uh, So today we're going to be looking at a a pretty big chunk of text. Uh, So... Let's, let's just go ahead and dive into the Word. Uh, we're going to be studying Acts chapter 10, so you can flip there in your Bibles. Um, but before we read, let's ask the Lord for His help as we study His Word. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this church. Thank you that you've given us a mission to, to go, to share the gospel. Lord, I pray that as we open up your word and we study this morning where there is confusion, Lord, please bring clarity, help us to focus, Lord, help us to submit to what you have for us this morning. In Christ's name we pray these things, amen. So we're in Acts chapter 10 today, Uh, we're going to be starting at verse 1, and I'm going to be reading from the ESV today, normally we do NIV, but I like ESV, so I'm going to read from ESV. Acts chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, 
a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So here in the beginning of chapter 10 of Acts, we're introduced to a man named Cornelius. And I'd like to take a bit and reflect on, on Cornelius, on who he is, uh, because I think it will help us to better understand the significance of what's going on here in Acts chapter 10. Uh, so we're told a few things about him, uh, but the first thing we're told is that he is a centurion. So for those of you who don't know, centurions in ancient Rome uh, were kind of these high-ranking military officers. Right? And so each centurion was in charge of 100 men, which is a fairly large number. And so because Cornelius is in charge of so many men, because he, he carried this title of centurion, he would have been a man of prominence in Roman society. He would have been decently wealthy, and in fact, he would have probably made about five times as much as the average Roman soldier. And so his identity as a centurion is important because Cornelius, in a lot of ways, would have kind of been this, this picture of, of Rome, of what Rome was all about. This, this mighty Roman soldier who'd risen his way up the ranks uh, to the top and he'd acquired power and influence. And in Rome... That's what it was all about, right? It was about power, it was about status, it was about influence. And so, in many ways, a, a centurion embodied Rome. Right? It was a picture of Roman culture. However, Cornelius was unique to centurions because he didn't totally embrace the Roman way of life. In one way, specifically, he was starkly different from the rest of Roman culture. Rome was extremely polytheistic, meaning they worshipped many gods. Uh, and in fact, Rome worshipped hundreds upon hundreds of different gods. And the fact that Roman culture was polytheistic and allowed the worship of many gods was actually was actually fundamental to the success of the Roman Empire, right? The, the big, bad Roman Empire. It was, a, in a sense, a political strategy. So, in the past, when you had this, this large empire gaining power in the world, um, they would, you know, they'd conquer a smaller nation, and they would force the, the people they conquered to worship their gods. And it was kind of this this, this sign that we've, we've conquered you. Now you have, to, you have to bow the knee to our gods. You have to worship our gods. And it, it would make it really hard to govern these 
people that they conquered because they were constantly rebellious, because they weren't content, because they'd taken away their culture, they'd taken away their gods. And so the bigger an empire got, uh, the harder it was to kind of maintain control because uh, the conquered nations would want to rebel. But Rome's strategy was different, right? So in order to maintain order in this vast empire, uh, the Romans would strategically allow the people that they conquered to keep worshiping their gods. Uh, and so the conquered people would still have to, you know, they'd have to worship the Roman gods too, and they'd pay homage to the emperor, and they would participate in the, the Roman public religious practices. But they could still worship their gods, right? And, and so this made it easier for Rome to govern a large empire right, because the people were less likely to rebel. And so the result was this extremely polytheistic Roman culture. And necessarily so for the sake of the empire. But here in chapter 10 of Acts, we learn of this Roman centurion that has seemingly rejected this pagan polytheistic culture of Rome and has instead decided to worship the God of Israel, the one true God. And so understand that Cornelius would have been laughed at by uh, Roman culture because the idea of worshiping one God was so countercultural. It wouldn't have made sense to them. And yet here is Cornelius and he's rejecting culture and he's choosing to put his faith in God despite the fact that he would have been ridiculed for it. So Cornelius was a part of a group of people called the God-fearers. All right, these were Gentiles who worshipped Yahweh and were somewhat attached to their local synagogue, uh, but who wouldn't have taken on all the Jewish conversion rites, such as circumcision or the, the kosher diet. And so the sad reality is, is that the Jewish people also wouldn't have fully accepted Cornelius. It says later in verse 22 of Acts chapter 10 that Cornelius was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. But he still wasn't a Jew. Right? He was still uh, on the outside. He was still unclean. So Cornelius is kind of stuck in this, this weird middle ground uh, where he's most likely ridiculed by the Romans and he's not fully accepted by the Jews. And yet, despite this, Cornelius loved God. And so we're told that he prayed and he gave alms anyway. And so one day Cornelius suddenly has this vision of God and of, of an angel of the Lord. And like most people, he starts kind of freaking out. Uh, but the angel tells him to send for the apostle Peter in Joppa, in Joppa. And so in obedience, Cornelius sends two of his servants and a soldier to go find the Apostle Peter. And that brings us up to verse 9. So we'll return to the scriptures here. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. He saw the heavens opened, something like a great sheet descending 
being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So, while Cornelius' men are traveling to find Peter in Joppa, Peter's sitting on a rooftop, and he's praying. Suddenly he has this vision, in which he sees this, this giant sheet descend on uh, the whole earth. And in the sheet are these different animals. And Peter's looking at this sheet full of animals. And, and God speaks to Peter, and he tells him to kill and to eat. And at first, Peter refuses. Right? Because inside the animals, inside the sheet are animals that were unclean. And the Jewish people had very strict dietary laws um, where, you know, they had to only eat certain animals and the food had to be prepared in a certain way. And so when God tells Peter to kill and to eat, Peter naturally is perplexed. And, and he actually refuses to eat because he didn't want to, to violate these Jewish dietary laws. But then the voice comes again and says, what God has made clean, do not call common. So Peter awakes from this vision, very confused. Um, right about that time, Cornelius' men arrive at the house that Peter's staying at, and the Holy Spirit kind of instructs Peter to go down and meet them. And so he ends up traveling with the, the men that Cornelius sent, and he ends up traveling back to uh, Cornelius. And so meanwhile, all, the, all this is happening. Cornelius kind of gathers together all his friends and his family um, to listen to Peter. And so finally, Peter arrives, and he goes in to address them. And at some point, the meaning of Peter's vision must have kind of dawned on him. Uh, because when he, he speaks to this crowd of Gentiles, this is what he says. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And so Peter recognized that the vision that he had didn't mean that God was just overturning the old dietary laws from the Old Testament, right? But that God's kingdom was expanding to include even the Gentiles, and so Peter, in recognizing this, extends the good news to Cornelius and his company. And this is what he says in verses 34 through 43. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death 
by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him, and after he rose from the dead, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So Peter preaches the good news to the Gentiles, and the Holy Spirit falls on them, and they end up being baptized in the name of Christ here at the end of of Acts chapter 10. Now, I'd like to take a moment while we're kind of here at the end of Acts chapter 10. And I'd, I'd like us to just take a bit and consider these last two verses of the chapter. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing this people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. I think that for a lot of us, we've taken baptism and we've made it something that Scripture doesn't make it. Right? We've distorted its meaning to be something of, of a checkpoint in our walk with Christ. We think that you know, once we've once we've figured it all out, once we've, you know, dealt with every single sin in our life, then we'll get baptized. But that's not how baptism is described in the New Testament. It's never been the, the mark of a mature Christian. It's been the mark of a Christian. So time and time again, you'll see it in the book of Acts. Someone gets saved and they're baptized immediately upon conversion. And so we see it here. We see it at Pentecost. We see it at the conversion of Paul, the conversion of Lydia, the conversion of the uh, Philippian jailer, the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. Every single time someone converts in the book of Acts, they're immediately baptized. And so baptism is a sign of conversion, not spiritual perfection. Look at what Peter's conditions are for being baptized. The only qualification was that they'd received the Holy Spirit, which is a mark of conversion. And so I get that it's, you know, it's a little more nuanced when you accept Christ when you're like three years old and you, you want to wait until you have a mature understanding of what you're doing when you enter the waters of baptism. I get that. I'm not disputing that at all. But for a lot of us, uh, I don't think that's, that's really the issue. I think we understand what baptism is about. We understand what the gospel is. And we've, we've been converted. But we have this, this notion in our minds that we have, to, we have to clean ourselves up before we go get baptized. And if that's you, I'd like you to recognize that every person ever, save for the Lord Jesus Christ himself has entered the waters of baptism as a sinner. Not one of us has been completely freed from sin 
when we enter the waters of baptism. Jesus teaches us that we don't make ourselves well to go to the doctor. In the same way, we don't clean ourselves before we go get washed. Because baptism is for sinners who need Christ, right? Not spiritual all-stars. But before we move on, because I don't want to spend too much time here, uh, my final thing I'd like to, to kind of say on these verses here at the end of Acts chapter 10 is notice what the scripture says Peter does in verse 48. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. It doesn't say that he suggested. It doesn't say it that he said it might be a good idea. He commands believers to be baptized. So baptism isn't just a good thing to do. It is a good thing to do, but it's not just that. It's a command. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, then I think you should seek to be faithful and obey that command. So that was a bit of a bunny trail, um, but I hope that that was helpful for some of you. Um, But I'd like to kind of switch gears here and get back to the bigger picture of what's happening here in Acts chapter 10. So the story of Cornelius and Peter that we read about here is the longest narrative in all the book of Acts. And more details seem to kind of be crammed into this story than anywhere else in the book of Acts. It's like the author is is determined to to make this event well documented. And actually, if we would continue reading on into chapter 11, you'd see that chapter 11, they spend a lot of chapter 11 just talking about what happened in chapter 10. So why is Acts chapter 10... Why is it so important? Why do, we, why do we care so much about this story about Cornelius and Peter? What about this episode is so vital to the narrative of Acts? Well, I think for us as, as 21st century readers of the Bible, we, we read this story and we don't recognize the magnitude of what's going on in this chapter. The God of Israel has chosen to extend the good news of the Messiah to Gentiles. And we hear that and we think, it's it's great. But I, I don't think we really grasp how great this is of what's going on here. Because God has been operating almost exclusively through the people of Israel for the past roughly 2,000 years Meaning it was, it was to them that the law was given and the prophets and the kings and the promises. And now God has chosen to reveal himself to not just the Jewish people, but to all nations everywhere. And this would have, this would have shocked a lot of the Jewish people, even though it probably shouldn't have. Because so much of their identity is wrapped up in being separate from the nations, about being set apart, being holy. In chapter 11, Peter goes to Jerusalem and he, he's criticized for just simply eating 
with Gentiles. And so imagine their response when he tells them he, he didn't just eat with them, but he preached the good news to them. He offered salvation through Christ to them. And so Peter stands before the Jews and he tells the story of what happened with him and Cornelius. He tells it to his critics in chapter 11. And this is what happens. Verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And this would have been a shock for Jewish believers in many ways. And for the non-Christian Jew, it would have been scandalous to think that the holy God of Israel would associate himself with Gentiles. And not just any Gentiles. To a Roman centurion. A Roman centurion. Remember, Cornelius would have embodied Rome. Right? And, the, and the Jewish people hated the Romans. Right? They, they hated that they were under Roman rule. Remember that the Jewish people thought the Messiah was going to come and he was going to free them from the Roman oppressors. Right? And that, uh, a lot of the, the disciples got that mixed up in their mind when, Peter, or when Jesus was going to Jerusalem. They thought he was going to enter in and he was going to overthrow the Romans, win back the freedom of the Jewish people. Because Rome was the enemy. And to think that God would extend the offer of salvation to a Roman centurion, to his enemies. How could God do that? Something beautiful is happening in chapter 10 of Acts. Something beautiful that's been planned for a very, very long time. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 110. This is probably a familiar psalm for a lot of you. We're going to be looking at verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is a psalm of David. And we understand that in this verse, God is addressing the Davidic king. He's telling the Davidic king to sit at his right hand until he makes his enemies into his footstool. Uh, now, the Davidic king here is not David. Right? The, the Davidic king is the one true Davidic king, the Messiah, the Christ. And so the psalm is essentially kind of David listening in on a divine conversation between God the Father and the Messiah, between the Father and the Son. And so what does the Father mean when he says he's going to make Christ's enemies into a footstool? It's kind of an odd phrase. We don't hear that a lot nowadays. What does it mean? Well, this idea of making your enemies into a footstool in most cultures brings along with it this idea that you've, you've conquered your enemies, which kind of makes sense. It has this imagery of uh, you know, a king with his foot propped up 
on the back of his enemy, using him like a lounge chair or whatever. And so typically, this, this footstool imagery refers to someone being conquered. But in Hebrew culture, this footstool imagery is, is, is just a little bit different. The, the Hebrew word here in Psalm 110 is hadom. And the word in Hebrew culture, it means footstool, but the word hadom is actually associated with the temple, with worship. So God the Father isn't telling the Messiah that he's merely going to conquer his enemies. He's telling him that he's going to take his enemies and he's going to turn them into his worshipers. It's one thing to conquer your enemies and make them bow the knee. It's another thing to take the people that were your enemies and make them adore you. But that's what God promises. And when we look at Acts chapter 10, we see that this promise is being fulfilled. And and this is, is where the beauty is found. Because we were far off. We were the enemies of God. But he chose to draw us near. He chose to make us his own. Even though we were sinners. And we don't deserve his grace. God chose to make even Gentiles into his worshipers. And he did it to display his glory and his loving kindness to the world. The reality that God would let us be a part of his kingdom should bring about a shock and an awe to our hearts. But I think that sometimes this this Gentile inclusion stuff, it just kind of goes over our head. But this morning, I want you to grasp the privilege that it is to be a part of God's family. God did not, he did not have to offer you a place in his family. He didn't have to let us in. He would have been morally just to throw us to the dogs and let us waste away because that's what we deserve. He doesn't owe us anything, but even so, he's chosen to make us his own. And he's chosen to take his enemies and turn them into his worshipers. The title of this sermon is The Gospel is for All. And that's the beauty of Acts chapter 10. God has extended the border of his kingdom far beyond the people of Israel. No longer is the kingdom confined to just a single people group. But what are, we, what are we supposed to do with that truth? How do we apply that to our lives in a, in a practical way? Well, I guess I would tell you that the reality that the gospel is for all reveals another key truth. If the gospel is for all, then everyone needs the gospel. I think that John was 
correct in his evaluation of our church at the beginning of this series. I think that evangelism, if we're honest, is something that we, we struggle with as a church. I think we all know it. Um, and I'm not, I'm not exactly sure why we're bad at it. I don't know if it's our culture. I, I, don't, know, I don't know what it is. But this morning, I want to make sure that none of us think that we don't need to share the gospel because people don't need it. Look at, look at Cornelius. Cornelius seems like a good guy. Right? He, he gave alms. He prayed to God. But that wasn't, that wasn't enough. That wasn't going to be enough for Cornelius because Cornelius still needed the gospel. So much so that God had to, you know, supernaturally communicate with Cornelius and Peter and divinely bring them together just so that Peter could deliver the gospel to him. And, and this is what the crazy part is. If Cornelius would have, would have just not believed Peter and he would have said no to the gospel, even though he, he prayed and he gave alms and he loved God, he would have been lost. He wouldn't have been saved. But he's a good guy, isn't he? He prays, he gives alms. Doesn't that at least make him a good guy? No. Because, because good works aren't going to get us into heaven. We need to understand the desperate need that lost man has for the gospel. We need to understand just how sinful humanity is. We have to recognize that even the nicest, most selfless, caring people that you know, they're doomed unless they know Christ. Romans 3, 9 through 18, paints a a clear picture of the state of humanity outside of Christ. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that, bo- that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Humanity has rebelled against God. And so the wrath, the righteous wrath of God is against humanity. And that's what the world needs saved from. The world is in danger of the wrath of God. And rightly so, because God would be just to pour out his wrath on us. But the beauty of the gospel is this. For the people who repent and believe on Christ, 
promises is that God's wrath against them has been poured out on the suffering servant. It's been poured out on Christ. On the cross, Jesus suffered and died because the wrath of God demanded that someone had to be punished for what we've done. But Christ, praise God, paid the debt that we could not afford. And the even more wonderful, more wonderful part is that the righteousness of Christ is now accredited to us. So when we stand before God, he'll see us covered in the righteousness of his son. We have nothing, nothing of our own to offer. But Christ, in Christ, we have everything. And that truth, that truth, the truth of what Christ has done for his people, that is what ought to propel us to share the good news of Jesus. Because we owe him everything. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are humbled before you today, knowing that you're good and we are wicked. We've gone astray, Lord, but through your Son, we've been brought to the light, Lord. Lord, I pray that as we go from here, as we go into our places of work, to our schools, to our families, Lord, that we would take this commission to share the gospel seriously. Because everyone needs the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us, bless us, give us hope. It's in Christ's name that we pray all these things. Amen.